0: A few countries have learned the hard way that celebrity does not necessarily translate to the competent execution of high public office. Another such experiment founded this week in Pakistan with the deposing of Prime Minister Imran Khan by a parliamentary vote of no confidence. Imran Khan had risen to prominence as a cricket player, a fine fast bowler, solid middle-order batsman and eventually long-serving captain of Pakistan's national team. By the time he retired from Test cricket in 1992, Khan was certainly one of the best-known people in Pakistan, probably the best-known Pakistani in the world, and gave every impression of enjoying the life of a globetrotting playboy. Khan became Prime Minister in 2018, by which time he had long since reinvented himself as a pious moral crusader, unsullied by the chronic corruption of Pakistan's establishment parties, the Muslim League Nawaz and the People's Party. This week's ousting of Khan by those establishment parties continues Pakistan's streak of having never allowed a Prime Minister to complete a full term. Was Imran Khan always going to crash and burn? Will his successor, Shabazz Sharif, do any better? And is Pakistan actually even governable? This is the Foreign Desk. I
1: compare Imran very much to Trump, the former president of the United States. At the end, he was ignoring the Constitution, he's ignoring the Supreme Court, he was being arrogant, egotistical. The whole lineup is so reminiscent of what Trump did after January 6th. I think these autocrats, they have a similar playbook. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm
0: Andrew Muller. There is no better means of illustrating the difficulty of governing Pakistan than reflecting on the experiences of some of those who have tried. I'm joined now by Ian Talbot, Professor in the History of Modern South Asia at the University of Southampton and the author of Pakistan, A New History. Ian, let's start with the founder of Pakistan, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, who was briefly Governor-General before he died in 1948.
1: To every member of the Muslim state, Mr Jinnah had been a figure as loved and revered as Mahatma Gandhi had been to the peoples of India. By the strength of his faith, Muhammad Ali Jinnah had made the dream of Pakistan into a reality and will ever be remembered as the father of his people.
0: I know counterfactuals are never a comprehensive demarcation of anything one way or the other, but if Muhammad Ali Jinnah lives another 10 years, say, is Pakistan's first decade perhaps a bit less chaotic?
2: It may be. I mean, certainly Pakistanis would argue that and would see things as really going downhill because the founder of the nation was removed so quickly. And they compare that with Nehru and the fact that he was able to give stability to India. Having said that, some of the structural problems were already there in Jinnah's time, and he may not have been able to have addressed them. I'm talking about things like the weakness of the political parties, unlike the bureaucracy and the emerging military. I'm talking about issues like centre-state tensions, dominance of particular provinces. I'm also talking about you know, the legacy of what kind of Pakistan, what was this new state to be? I mean, Jinnah had left it quite vague, really, to be able to bring as many people as possible on side during the struggle. So if it had to define it uh, more clearly, that could well have been divisive.
0: We should look now at Liaquat Ali Khan, who was the first prime minister of Pakistan, and also the first prime minister of Pakistan, whose rule ended, well, less than ideally. In fact, as unideally as it gets, he was assassinated in 1951.
1: It is the common folk of Pakistan who come to pay their final respects to the man who succeeded Ali Jinnah during the troubled times that attended the birth of the nation. They mourn a man who attempted to bring order out of chaos in the struggle now dividing India. Are we yet any
0: the wiser as to why that happened?
2: Not really. It's a simple answer to that. I mean, there's all kinds of conspiracy theories still going around. There isn't documentary evidence to prove why it was that he was assassinated, whether it was a conspiracy, as some people argue, because of him shifting Pakistan's policies, or whether it was just a sort of lone assailant, which was the other version that was put forward, you know, without any wider Conspiracy. It's impossible to tell because the documentation just doesn't exist. There isn't a definitive answer to that question, just as there isn't really about Benazir Bhutto's assassination in the same place you know, <laughs> years later.
0: Benazir Bhutto we will get to in due course, but in 1958 we have the establishment of another recurring theme of Pakistani politics, which is coups d'etat. This is the first one by Field Marshal Ayub Khan. Is there a reason why the civil administration of Pakistan has never seemed able to entirely control the military, which is, of course, the cornerstone of any functional
2: democracy? That's right, it is. I mean, one of the problems, obviously, for Pakistan was its very insecure um, strategic situation, which gave the military right from the beginning perhaps more input than would be normal. Obviously, the weakness of the political institutions, sometimes the lack of discipline within political organisations, as opposed to the military, has been a factor in this. And of course, once the military intervene, they can then sort of dig in their influence across society, which really happened after this first coup. If anyone called you a military dictator, how would you answer? Well, I'll say he's talking bloody
1: rubbish, (laughs) that's all. (laughs) He doesn't know what he's talking about. (laughs) Somebody did charge me with a military
2: dictator. So in a sense, the first 10 years sets the template for what happens thereafter. But once there's been one coup, it's more likely that there's going to be subsequent ones.
0: Ayub Khan stays in charge for a decade, give or take. Civilian rule returns in the 1970s with Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, president, then prime minister. He's overthrown in another coup in 1977 and later executed. He was popular-ish at the time by the standards of Pakistani leaders. How well has his reputation endured?
2: Well, I mean, he was always a, a sort of Marmite-type figure in terms of Pakistan, with his detractors as well as his supporters. For his supporters, he's still a symbol of the sacrifices which the PPP and particularly the Bhutto family have made for democracy in Pakistan. And, and certainly uh, Billawal Zadari Bhutto sort of calls on his speeches and talks about this legacy that needs to be implemented of uh, much more sort of concern for the poorer sections of society than has happened in the past. The general masses of people are with me, and it is because I, my party believes in giving Pakistan not only democracy, but with democracy, economic justice as well. Then, of course, there are the detractors who say that Butcher was authoritarian and that he brought about his own demise by the mistakes that he made. I think the question on everyone's minds is, will Mr. Butto be hanged? All I will stress on this, that uh,
1: justice must be done. And nobody is above the law, according to my
2: conviction, whether it is Mr. A, Mr. B, or General Ziaulak himself. And justice must be done. You could never really be anything other than an authoritarian large landowner. Despite his liberal leanings and his own lifestyle and his Western education,
0: Bhutto is of course followed by another long period of military rule. This under Muhammad Zia ul Haq, who was the general who overthrew Bhutto, and Zia stays in charge until he dies in a suspicious plane crash. Another somewhat recurring theme of Pakistani politics, but he was obviously relied upon by the West as this major figure in the proxy war in Afghanistan. Is there actually a case, whether you believe it or not, that a lot of the Western world, particularly the United States, would basically prefer a predictable, reliable military dictator in Pakistan than the chaos of Pakistani democracy?
2: I think that the West, uh, United States particularly, but also UK, were prepared to work with military dictators and could see some value in the stability that they brought. That doesn't mean to say they preferred these dictators to a more democratic setup, or indeed that they intervened in any way to bring about this state of affairs. And I think that that's one of the conspiracy theories. And there's so many conspiracy theories in Pakistan today, you know, that whenever there's a military coup or, or whenever anything happens, it's got to be the Western sort of tentacles influencing this rather than what's happening within the country Itself, And I think that that overestimates the influence that the West can actually play. But certainly, as far as Zia was concerned, he was an absolute pariah, really, until the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan. And then the West were prepared to do business with him. President Zia, Begum Zia, distinguished guests, it's an honor for me to welcome you to the White House this evening. Mr. President, our talks this morning... Underlined again, the strong links between our countries. But nonetheless, the Americans, as well as the British, are still aware of the human high laws rights laws issues within Pakistan and the ways in which Zia was certainly abusing his power, as well as perhaps bringing some kind of stability to the country at the same time. After
0: Zia, we see another restoration of democracy after another prime minister called Bhutto, this being Benazir, daughter of Zulfiqar Ali. She had two goes at being prime minister. She was assassinated in 2007 when she returned to Pakistan to try and have a third go at being prime minister. And again, the Bhutto family do have this extraordinary presence in Pakistani politics and Pakistani society. Are they still regarded as influential in any respect? Are they something people look up to or hanker after?
2: I think, again, it's certain sections of Pakistani society would look up to them and would see the Bhutto legacy in a very positive light. But there's equally large sections of Pakistan society that would not have such a positive view. I mean, Benazir herself had her critics when she was holding the reins of prime minister. And certainly some people would see her again as contributing to her own failures. But they are within Sindh, particularly still highly influential and regarded as really upholders of the democratic cause in Pakistan.
0: We should therefore consider another actual triple prime minister, Nawaz Sharif, and indeed the brother of the recently installed new prime minister. Does his career, though, and leaving aside what he might have got right and what he might have got wrong, the fact that he had three goes at being prime minister, the fact that each one ended in a different kind of drama, does it tell us something about the essential, if you like, ungovernability of Pakistan, that for whatever reason, this is not a country which necessarily lends itself to stable democratic government?
2: I think what it, it shows is perhaps more the, the issue of the problems of civil-military relations in Pakistan than ungovernability. In all of these different quite dramatic circumstances in which Nawaz Sharif failed, It was ultimately down to the fact that although he might have been seen initially as a protégé of Zia, he ran foul of the military establishment for whatever reasons, and they were slightly different on each occasion. And it was because of that, really, that uh, he was unable to see out his time in office and perhaps to achieve the kind of things that he did. That doesn't mean to say, of course, that it's just the civil military issues which make Pakistan difficult to govern for whoever but it is a crucial element and people talk about Pakistan as a hybrid regime you know Mm. in which the the military and the civilians are operating together and leaders find it very difficult perhaps to walk this tightrope in terms of wanting to assume more power for themselves but at the same time being aware that the military is a silent power behind the scenes.
0: Well, there's probably not one single figure who illustrates that premise of a hybrid regime better than Pervaz Musharraf, another former general, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs who was president for a fair stretch in between Sharif's second and third cracks at being prime minister. Musharraf, I think, was at pains to present himself as a reasonably western looking, open to the world. His pitch seemed to be this is about as good as it's going to get. Is that a fair assessment of how he tried to position himself?
2: Yes, I think so. I mean, he was very keen on not following the Zia template Mm. for military rule and to present a very different rule and also to try and get acceptability from the West. Because, as I say, Zia only had really very grudging acceptability, and that was only after the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan. It's my honour to welcome uh, a friend... A leader and a uh, president Musharraf, but obviously uh, there were also downsides to his liberalism, and some people would say that again he started off perhaps in a more liberal vein, but became more repressive, and that led to the lawyers' movement against him. He has to go back, even at the cost of our life. He has to go back. We cannot accommodate a lawyer, a usurper.
1: We cannot accommodate a dictator
2: and the circumstances leading to the return of Benazir Bhutto and everything that stemmed from that. So Musharraf is an interesting figure because he is trying to establish a different kind of model for military rule. Yet at the same time, he ultimately comes up short because like all military rulers, he lacked legitimacy. And he was unable, I think, to establish his regime in the long run because of that. Professor Ian Talbot,
0: thank you for joining us. You're listening to The Foreign Desk on Monocle 24. You're listening to The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller. And joining me now from Lahore is Ahmed Rashid, a Pakistani journalist and author of several best selling books, including Taliban and Pakistan on the Brink. Previously, Ahmed worked as a correspondent for the Far Eastern Economic Review, The Independent, and The Daily Telegraph. And joining me from London is Samira Shackle, journalist editor of The New Humanist and author, most recently, of Karachi Vice. Ahmed, I'll start by asking you basically where has it all gone wrong? From Imran Khan? Well,
1: I think there are multiple problems. He, he has proved to be very poor at government, at governance, appointing the right people for the right jobs. Many key ministries were, ministers were replaced three or four or five times in the space of two years, three years. He really didn't learn very much before he got the job to become prime minister. And quite frankly, he hasn't learned very much afterwards. But other issues also immediately were that the Entire opposition, all the opposition parties, major ones, ganged up against him. And that is quite unprecedented in Pakistan, where the opposition has traditionally been divided. And he didn't satisfy the demands of the military, which is all-powerful in Pakistan. He wanted to relieve General Bajwa, the army chief, from his position and bring in a general who he thought was on his side. He was head of the intelligence services and is now a lieutenant general in the frontier region. And so Imran favoured this gentleman, much to the anger and chagrin of the army chief, plus the opposition going for a no confidence vote against him in parliament, which if it had happened, he would have surely lost.
0: I do want to come back to the influence of the military in this particular incident and on the influence of the military on Pakistan generally. But Samira, does Imran Khan actually have anything positive to show for his stretch as prime minister? He arrived in office promising to end corruption and fix the economy. And I realise that's what literally everybody who arrives in office in Pakistan says they're going to do. But did he make any progress at all on those or indeed any other fronts?
3: I think the main issue with Imran Khan's government has been that he's almost more comfortable as an opposition politician, I think. So he sort of seems to be most at home in front of a big rally of his supporters calling his opponents traitors and thieves or talking about a US conspiracy and so on. I mean, that's his preferred mode and that's where he's more comfortable as opposed to the much more mundane work of government. And so, as you say, he came to power... Promising to end corruption and create 10 million jobs and various other eye catching promises, which are familiar from populists around the world. I think that sort of eye catching big promise that I'm going to make everything better. And I don't think he really achieved much on those fronts. To be fair to him, it's not entirely his fault. I mean, corruption is pretty endemic in Pakistan. It would be Difficult to route it out very quickly. I think also the economic crisis predated his government and has also been exacerbated by global trends like pandemic-related supply chain issues, rising price of energy, and so on. But that said, you did ask me about the positives. I think there are some sort of smaller examples of positives. I think he has somewhat expanded the social welfare program and access to healthcare. I think he had a genuine interest in climate change mitigation, so has at least drawn attention. some climate change issues if not made much progress on actual policy and I think he's strengthened Pakistan's global relationships with countries like Russia and Turkey and so on but it's all quite patchy and I don't think there's much to show for the four years in government really I think it's been as I said characterized by U-turns and half measures and sort of chopping and changing things really.
0: Ahmed, um, does it doesn't make sense to think of Imran Khan, who may well yet have another crack at trying to become prime minister, as in the mould of other populist leaders we see around the world, who do do this thing of campaigning with these big sweeping promises and then get into power and discover that actual governance is actually quite difficult and boring and requires attention to detail, which they don't possess?
1: Yes, and they don't appear interested in possessing or learning anything. They think they know the whole truth and nothing but the truth, and there's no need to tell anyone. In that way, I compare Imran very much to Trump, the former president of the United States. At the end, he was ignoring the Constitution. He's ignoring the Supreme Court. He was ignoring any kind of compromise with a political compromise with the opposition or anyone else. He was being arrogant, egotistical. The whole lineup is so reminiscent of what Trump did after January 6th, after the storming of the U.S. Congress. I agree with you. I mean, I think these autocrats, they have a similar playbook, which is basically a complete rejection of what we grew up on, the democratic foundations, etc., and installing their own version of what is right and what is wrong. And they are the only ones who hold the truth to that.
0: Samira, the other thing that he does have in common with Trump and other populist autocrats is this insistence that everything is at some level some ghastly conspiracy against him and or his supporters. He is floating this idea, of course, that he is the victim of some plot orchestrated probably by the United States. But how widely is that believed? And I guess more importantly, which parts of Pakistani society believe it?
3: I think there is a, a sort of reflexive anti-Americanism and anti-Westernism, which is has some foundation that's, I think, quite justified. You know, you have certain events loom very large in Pakistan. So for instance, the sort of plot to find Osama bin Laden, which involved a fake vaccination drive orchestrated by the CIA in order to ascertain that Osama bin Laden was there and gather DNA and so on. And so that is a sort of genuine example of a US conspiracy happening in Pakistan, which really adds fuel, I think, to this sense of being exploited and hard done by, by the West. So I think that there's certainly the scope for that message to appeal. And I think with his supporters... Certainly. I mean, he's always relied, again, to come back to the Trump comparison, relied on a sort of politics of grievance, which I think is quite appealing to his support base, which is not entirely, but largely young, middle class and urban, which in Pakistan is quite a conservative demographic. I mean, I don't know how far it will reach beyond his support base, but his support base is not insignificant. So I think we're going to see him continue to press that line of a US conspiracy. It's kind of an easy win in a way.
0: Ahmed, do you think there is a way back for him? He doesn't seem like somebody who's going to give up. He seems to think himself a man of destiny. Can he come back?
1: Well, I don't know about coming back, but he's certainly going to be very high profile. There's going to be an election. And certainly, as Samira has said, he does have a support base in the middle class. But the fact is that if this new government that is coming into being with the Sharif brothers and the People's Party, will this government be able to hold things together, improve the economic climate and the massive recession that the country is going through and the unrest. I mean, a lot of the unrest that Imran is generating is because of the economic crisis and people are are hurting greatly, which is of course a phenomenon that is around the world at the moment. So he will make a comeback, but whether, first of all, the establishment is going to trust him to put their money on him as a winning horse, I doubt very much. But he will play a role in the future, there's no question. He's not giving up and going back to London or anything like
2: that.
0: Samira, at which point we should move on to his successor, Shabaz Sharif. How enthused is Pakistan likely to be about him really? Or are they just going to see him as a bit of a rerun of his brother?
3: Well, I think Pakistani politics has, up until Imran Khan's victory, generally been a bit of a rerun of what's come before. I mean, this is a country that's, A, been under direct military rule for almost half its history. And in the years when it's not under direct military rule, basically been swapped between two families, the Bhutto's and the Sharif's. So I think there's a kind of return to business as usual about that. And I don't know how enthusiastic people will be about that generally because we've talked a lot about Imran Khan's failings and I think those sort of worrying political forces that he's hastened, you know, I'm talking about the polarisation, the politics of grievance and so on. But I think it's important not to forget that there was a sense of hope and at least around parts of his 2018 election campaign and certainly in 2013 where he didn't win but did gain mass support that you know he reached outside his base enough in order to win and i think a lot of that was to do with the fact that he was a non-politician politician in a way he hadn't held high office he wasn't going into it for wealth and fame because he was already extremely wealthy and extremely famous and there was this kind of sense of that stranglehold of dynastic politics breaking which, you know, certainly just speaking to my own friends and family in Pakistan, people who aren't traditional PTI supporters, some of them did feel that, you know, at least it's something new, at least we can try something different. And so I think it's not necessarily a jubilant feeling to be going back to um, the sort of old dynasties. That said, the Sharifs do have their support base. I mean, it's Nawaz Sharif, Shahbaz's brother, who's generally seen as the one who brings out the crowds. And as you said, Shabazz is seen as more of a, a competent administrator, and also the fact that, as Ahmed said at the beginning, there's a, something unprecedented about the two parties and two dynasties working together. We haven't seen that before. These are families and parties that absolutely hate each other. So it'd be interesting to see how long it lasts and how they're able to work. It's not an uncomplicatedly happy development for lots of people, I think.
0: Ahmed, you were speaking earlier about the importance of Imran Khan's apparent falling out with Pakistan's military in precipitating his downfall. But of course, the Sharif family, specifically Nawaz Sharif themselves, had a pretty rickety relationship with Pakistan's military to understate matters wildly. Do you get the sense that the thinking of Pakistan's military has evolved at all about what their level of involvement in politics should be, by which I guess I'm asking, have we seen the last coup d'etat in Pakistan, do you think?
1: Well, I think that's a very long shot. I wish it was (laughs) the case, but I think it's a very long shot. The point was, I think, that the military, and in particular this present group of senior generals, had a great deal to do with Imran's victory at the polls four years ago. Now, the question after that was, that the military only presumed that Imran had a game plan to govern the country, and an economic plan, and there was no such thing. And things deteriorated because the military wanted him to perform, and he wasn't able to do it because he had really no plan to do it. And he believes that he's a godsend on foreign policy, but in fact he's made so many blunders in foreign policy. Now the military is taking a very neutral stance. It claims it had nothing to do with whatever happened with the ousting of Imran Khan and the vote and the no confidence vote that was being put to the assembly, it is not playing any role. But the fact is that the military remains the umpire, the ultimate arbiter of what happens and what doesn't happen. And that's not going to change, I don't think.
0: Shabaz Sharif Samira is prime minister now. So given that he may have a limited opportunity to make some kind of mark. Is there anything he could do or should do to define what kind of prime minister he hopes to be?
3: It's a difficult question, actually, because, as we've said, the election campaign is about to sort of kick into gear. And in a way, I think it'll almost be an achievement in itself to just keep this very unlikely coalition of parties together until then. I mean, it's kind of hard to overstate the level of hostility between the opposition parties that have now... Taken up against Imran Khan to oust him, which I think is indicative of the extent to which Khan failed to reach across the divide and sort of chose to pursue his political opponents and brand them traitors rather than to reach across and have any sort of working together and cooperation. So I think the focus is probably going to be on keeping things going because I'm not sure how much can meaningfully be done about the economic crisis, which, you know, as we've discussed, is the core driving factor of a lot of the unrest we're seeing in the country at the moment because you know Pakistan is bound by the terms of a large IMF bailout there's these global issues and a lot of these domestic problems around unemployment and so on are quite long running and inflation etc so I think it's going to be quite difficult to make a meaningful change on those things. And of course, also, as discussed, we do still have the military, you know, we might not be having a coup d'etat, but we do have a very, very strong um, role for the military. I think several organisations described Pakistan during Imran Khan's tenure as a hybrid democracy, because the military, while not directly in power, were so closely involved in many of the important areas of government. So yeah, I think it's a difficult situation. And I'm not sure that we're going to see any massive turnarounds in terms of governance in the next six months or so before the election campaign kicks in.
0: And Ahmed, with all due recognition that we may be grasping frantically at some incredibly slender straws here, do you see any grounds for hope or optimism in the fact that Imran Khan has at least been removed by parliamentary procedure, not a coup d'etat? The last two elections have seen a transfer of power in Pakistan. Is there any sense at all that Pakistan's democracy is becoming, I guess, more of a democracy and less what Samira just characterised as a hybrid democracy?
1: Yes, I think so. Amongst elements in the middle class, certainly. Now, for example, there's a strong belief that Jabal Sharif has probably got the best business and economics mind out of all the candidates who are there waiting to be finance minister. I give you an example. When he was chief minister last time, the World Bank and the IMF praised him immensely for some of the work and the development projects, etc., that he initiated in Punjab province. So, you know, he has friends in high places in Washington, which is more than Imran did, who made it very public that he hated all these American institutions and didn't trust them at all. So that is a plus. And I think people are going to be looking towards what he can do on the economic side. But it has to be also said that the Sharif family, along with many other politicians, have got all these cases lined up against them. So what exactly is going to be the status of these cases? Will they be forgotten? Will they be shoved under the carpet? Which is really not going to work very well. But there has to be some solution to this. If you're going to bog the new prime minister down in corruption cases, he's not going to get very much done. Ahmed
0: Rashid and Samira Shackle, thank you very much for joining us here on The Foreign Desk. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. I'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy Evans. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. From me, Andrew Muller, thanks very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.